In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. There was a group numbering about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Jesus bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Al-Kadama, that is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And another take his place, may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, said Peter, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed... Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots 
and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Thank you, Carl. It's surprisingly difficult, isn't it, Chris, to pick the paper up off this lecture? It's really very difficult. Uh, I think we need to distribute thimbles to the service leaders, those rubber, uh, rubber thimbles, you know. Well, as Chris said, we're, uh, we're starting a new series on Acts this morning. Uh, we're working through the book of Acts, uh, and there's a handout that you should have received, and that has uh, details uh, on it of the series that we're going to be going through, some details on the book of Acts that you might find helpful, uh, and some tips as well for studying the book on your own or one-on-one with somebody else or in a growth group or something like that. So hopefully that'll be uh, a good resource for you uh, and something that'll be helpful. On the back page, I recommend a little commentary by a guy named Bruce Milne in the Focus on the Bible commentary series. And Bruce Milne begins his little book on Acts with this health warning. He says, studying the book of Acts can be very bad for your health. Specifically, it may cost you a lot of money. It could involve you in conversations leading to being dismissed, even mocked, It will very possibly undermine some of your most cherished ambitions and even require you to abandon some of your long-cherished dreams. It may involve you in profound relationships with people very different from yourself who speak the oddest of languages and live in the poorest, most densely populated, loneliest or trendiest of places on planet Earth. It may lead to your adopting new disciplines in prayer, affecting your sleep patterns and perhaps even shorten your life. So be warned. If the books of the Bible were sold individually, then Acts would be sold in plain paper packaging with health warnings on it uh, and pictures of people in prison, people being beaten, people being stoned, shipwrecked and hauled before courts because Acts is a dangerous book. It's a dangerous book which is bad for your health. Well, many of those uh, things are for the weeks to come, and yet in many ways the foundation for that dangerous life is laid right here in the very first chapter of Acts. Acts is Luke's account of the early church, and he begins his account of the early church with these words. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Luke's former book was the Gospel of Luke, in which he wrote about the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But here in the book of Acts, Luke takes that story up again. He's not taking up a different story, but he's taking up the same story. He says that his first book was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication is that Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about it, um, but uh, there are two kinds of movie sequels. I don't know know if you think much about these kinds of things, but there are two different kinds of movie sequels at least. Uh, There are franchise sequels uh, and there are character sequels. So franchise sequels carry on the plot of the first movie, but they have different characters. So, so Batwoman is kind of uh, a, a franchise sequel. There's all those uh, Marvel ones that are going on at the moment, uh, you know, Captain America and all those different ones. 
Deep Space Nine for the Star Trek people is a franchise sequel. Uh, they're, they're all within the same basic family, but uh, they have different main characters. But Superman 1, 2 and 3, you see, are all about the same guy. They're all about Superman. It's tempting, I think, for us to think that Acts is a kind of a franchise sequel to the Gospel. The Gospels are about what Jesus did, and now Acts is about what the church does. But that's not true, you see. Luke says that his Gospel is just about what Jesus began to do, and Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do. Character sequels have different supporting actors, they have different extras... But the main character is still the same, and it's the same with Acts. There's different supporting characters. Well, some of them are the same as well. But the main character is still the same. John Stott makes this point, uh, perceptive point, about these first two verses in Acts. Uh, And he says that these two verses actually set Christianity apart from every other religion. He writes, other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Luke says Jesus only began his. True, he finished the work of atonement, yet that was also a beginning. Because after his resurrection, ascension and gift of the Spirit, he continued his work. This then, writes Stott, is the kind of Jesus Christ we believe in. He is both the historical Jesus who lived and, here's the point, the contemporary Jesus who lives. The Jesus of history began his ministry on earth The Christ of glory has been active through the Spirit ever since. Jesus has not ceased to act. He's not returned to the Father and kind of gone on holidays. He hasn't done his bit and now we have to do our bit. He's still working to bring about all that the Father has promised that he would do. So Jesus promised Peter that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Jesus didn't say to Peter, I'll begin building my church and then if you could, could you finish it off for me? And by the way, I hope you do a good job of that. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus promised that he will build his church and actually that's what we see him doing in Acts. We see him building the church and that's what we see him doing today. We see him building the church. Jesus says he'll protect his people and that no one will snatch them out of his hands. And through Acts we see Jesus working to protect and preserve his people, even as they face vicious persecution. As Stephen dies a martyr's death, stoned for preaching the gospel, he looks up into heaven, opened up, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God, controlling history. Even he's being stoned to death. It's easy to think, I think sometimes for us that maybe Jesus has just left us to look after ourselves. But Luke says that's not true. That Jesus is still working, still doing, still doing all that is promised. Paul says that Jesus is working to bring everything in heaven and on earth under his feet to recognise his authority and the authority of his Father in heaven. And through Acts, as the gospel is preached, people submit themselves to that authority, to the authority of Jesus. They bow to Jesus as their king. And sometimes in the book of Acts, we even see God's judgment. God's judgment on people who set themselves up in the place of God. We see that in Acts 12 with with Herod. And Jesus is still doing those same things today. He hasn't stopped seeking to bring everything under his authority but through the preaching of the gospel and even through judgment. 
He's bringing everything to recognise his rule. We mustn't think that Jesus has left us on our own to finish what he started. We can't bear the burden of that. Jesus uses us, yes, we'll come to that in a moment, but it's still Jesus doing the work through us, not us doing the work in the place of Jesus. It's so crucial for us to understand that. The Gospels are not about the beginning and the end of Jesus' work. They're just about the beginning and Acts is the story of what Jesus is continuing to do and what he continues to do even today. So Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach, but strikingly it's also about what Jesus is continuing to do and continuing to teach through his disciples. So in verse 6 of chapter 1, we see the disciples half expect that now that Jesus has risen from the dead, he's not going to continue to do and to teach. They think that the battle is over and that Jesus is just going to make everything better straight away. So they ask Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're waiting for Jesus to restore Israel to what it had been in the Old Testament, in the days of King David and King Solomon, when Israel had been a great nation under God. But Jesus says that's not his plan. Instead, his disciples will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples are worried about the end, when the end is going to come. They want it to come now. And Jesus says, well, don't don't worry about that or when it's going to happen. I want you to know that actually I've got a job for you to do to be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. They'll be the chief means through whom Jesus continues to do and to teach. Well, I think the disciples' mentality is an attractive one, isn't it? Uh, It'd be nice to think that Jesus has finished everything that he means to do uh, and that our task is just to wait until he restores the kingdom uh, to God and everything is under Jesus' feet. With that mentality, we kind of end up hunkering down, don't we, and just waiting for it to happen, waiting for Jesus to return, waiting for his glory to be manifest throughout all the world. We fail to realise that Jesus is actually doing something bigger than that. Jesus is using the church to proclaim his glory to the ends of the earth. If the world is still going on as it is, and if we are still here, it's not because Jesus has forgotten about us, It's not because he's got busy doing something else instead. If we're still here, it's because Jesus has more work to do in making his name known and in bringing people to love and to trust him. Jesus is continuing to work and Jesus is using his disciples, us, to do much of that work. And if you are Jesus' disciple, then Jesus is using you as well. Jesus said he will build his church and he promises to do that work through us. Having said that, though, it's worth stopping to take note, I think, of how the ministry that Jesus gave to those first disciples is different, although similar, but different to the ministry that he gives us. So there's a sense it's important for us to realise that the first disciples had a role that we can't replicate. And we see that role in the second half of the chapter 
In the second half of chapter 1, we see the disciples looking to replace Judas. Uh, and they recognise, first of all, that Judas' betrayal was uh, predicted in the Old Testament and that they need to look for a replacement for him. So they quote two Psalms, Psalm 69, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And Psalm 109, may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership. In verse 21, they then lay out the requirements for a replacement. So what will a replacement for Judas need to be? Uh, They lay out those requirements and the two people who best seem to fit are Joseph and Matthias and uh, they cast lots to work out which of those two should take on the role. John Wesley, the uh, 18th century evangelist, used this episode in Acts as a proof text, if you like, for using lots to make decisions in the Christian life. But it's worth saying, I think, in passing, that even though the disciples ended up casting lots in order to make this decision, they first do a number of other things as well. They first interpret the Old Testament to try and work out what it is that they should do. They then use their brains to work out what kind of criteria would make someone a meaningful witness to the Jesus of history. And then they work out who among them actually fits that criteria. And they're left with two people. And it's only then that they cast lots. It's also worth saying that although lots were a characteristic way of discerning the will of God in the Old Testament, after Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, there's no further example of people making decisions in that way. Instead, what we see again and again and again is believers gathering to pray together for the wisdom of God. That aside, though, what interests us here, I think, is the list of the requirements that the disciples give for Judah's replacement. They say in verse 21... It's necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up for us. Uh, For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Jesus, in the first half of chapter 1, sends his disciples as witnesses. In the second half of chapter 1, the disciples are looking for a replacement witness uh, for Judas. But that person, in order to be a witness, must have been with Jesus through his entire ministry, from the days of John the Baptist until his death and resurrection and his ascension. In other words, there's a sense in which the apostles were witnesses in a way that we can never be. They were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. We are not eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. We're not eyewitnesses of his death and resurrection. The apostles have a non-repeatable role which we can never take on. They are the foundational witnesses of the church. Paul says in Ephesians that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation cornerstone of the church because to them God gave the message about Jesus and they passed that message on to us. We can't be witnesses in the same sense that, we, that they can. We can uh, point others to their testimony, but we didn't see those things with our own eyes. But having heard their testimony, 
we can share that good news with other people. We can share the good news with other people that God became a man in Jesus Christ, that he healed the sick, that he raised the dead, that he laid down his life for sinners, that he laid down his life to reconcile us to God, that he rose from the dead on the third day. In other words, our witness to Jesus is not primarily a witness to what Jesus has done for us. We can certainly tell people about what Jesus has done for us. That matters. But that isn't the essence of Christian witness. Our witness to Jesus is a derived witness based on the apostles' testimony of what Jesus has done in history. That he entered our world, that he ministered to us, that he died and that he rose again. Acts is about the continuing ministry of Jesus. It's about the continuing ministry of Jesus building the church through the witness of the church. But crucially and lastly, it is a ministry for which Jesus equips his disciples. In verse 4 and 5, Jesus warns the disciples not to go anywhere until the Spirit comes. And the reason for that warning becomes clear in verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples will receive power through the Holy Spirit to be the witnesses that God has called them to be. Jesus is not saying two things. You'll receive the Holy Spirit, isn't that nice? And you'll be my witnesses. He's saying that the reason that they receive the Holy Spirit is in order to be witnesses. All through Acts you see the Spirit equipping people for that very task. In the very next chapter the Spirit comes on the disciples at Pentecost and they preach the gospel to thousands of people and they do it miraculously in languages that they don't know but that the people understand. In Acts 4, Peter is filled with the Spirit in order to preach the gospel to the Jewish elders and leaders who have arrested him. In Acts 8, the Spirit guides the evangelism of Peter. In Acts 10, the Spirit guides, uh, sorry, in Acts 8, he guides the evangelism of Philip, and in Acts 10, he uh, guides the evangelism of Peter to the God fearing Cornelius. In Acts 13, the Spirit guides the church in setting apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of ministry. In Acts 16, the Spirit forbids Paul and Timothy from preaching the gospel and from going to certain regions. And on and on it goes through Acts, the Spirit equipping and tasking people, guiding people in the work that Jesus has called them to of being witnesses to the ends of the earth. You see, one of the key reasons, according to the book of Acts, that we receive the Spirit is in order to be witnesses to Jesus. That's not the only purpose that the Spirit has in the life of God's people. But here in Acts chapter 1, it's the main purpose. The main purpose that we receive the Spirit is in order to be witnesses to Jesus. There are two implications, I think, of that, uh, of that, I think, at least. The first implication is that witness should be a central part of the Christian life. If one of the reasons we have the Spirit is to be witnesses, then witnessing ought to be present in our life. We do that in lots of different ways. Uh, One of the best books on that is John Dixon's book, Promoting the Gospel. And John Dixon points out that we promote the gospel in lots of ways. We promote the gospel with our prayers. We promote the gospel with uh, the life that we live. We promote the gospel with our money, with uh, our public praise as we gather in church on Sunday. 
uh, and as we gather throughout the week. We promote the gospel in lots of different ways, but one of the key ways that we promote the gospel is by the things that we say, by our daily conversation. We witness to Jesus by testifying to the truth about him. We say Jesus died and rose again to reconcile people to God. It's really not very difficult in many ways, is it? It's a very simple thing to say. And yet God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit in order to equip us to say it. In the last few weeks, uh, I've had a number of conversations that have literally fallen into my lap out of nowhere. I had a guy come to my house to uh, check the smoke detectors and we ended up talking about faith and Christianity. Uh, uh, A number of weeks ago, I was at the pub and a guy asked me, of all questions, asked me about the authenticity of the manus- the biblical manuscripts, which is, you know, kind of one of my dream questions. You know, it's the kind of, the kind of thing I love to answer. I'm like, wow. And he was so in- excited to hear the answer. Uh, it was going on forever. But uh, it was wonderful. What a wonderful experience. And then uh, uh, the other day I was, uh, I was at the shops paying for something and I had a passing conversation with the shop assistant about going, going to church. We both went to church. And the, but the man behind us was there listening in as we talked about uh, our shared faith. It's not always an opportunity that we have uh, to preach a whole gospel sermon. But they're little opportunities that come our way to sow the seeds and to testify to Jesus. The first implication... Uh, of the spirit in our lives is that we should be uh, that wit- is that witness should be a central part of our Christian life. The se- second implication of receiving the spirit is that we don't need to be afraid of witness because our witness to Jesus is spirit enabled and spirit empowered. So often I think we're afraid of what people will think, but we need to remember that whatever people think, however they respond, the spirit has enabled us and empowered us to to deal with that. The Spirit helps us to cope with their response. So if they hate us, the Spirit equips us to cope with their hate. If they beat us up for it, the Spirit equips us to cope with that as well. If they make us laugh, if they, if they, make, if they laugh at us, I should say, and make fun of us, the Spirit equips us to deal with that as well. But we also might be afraid, I think, that even if we do say something, it won't work. That it won't be convincing or that it will sound corny or stupid or something like that. But we need to remember that the Spirit can make our ordinary words powerful words. It's not, after all, our clever words which make people Christians or draw people to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that draws and compels people to come to Christ. So the next time you think to yourself, well, I could have said that better, couldn't I? Why not stop and pray? Thank you, Lord, for giving me that opportunity and I pray that your spirit will make my pathetic words powerful words. I uh, was listening to a talk yesterday on the way home in the car uh, and the person uh, was talking about their own experience uh, as a child sitting in a class with a teacher who was not even a a Christian. But this teacher's father had been uh, a Christian. And this teacher, this atheist teacher, would talk in his class wistfully 
about his father's faith. faith. And uh, the person who was speaking, a friend of mine, uh, said he heard that and he thought to himself, what that man's father had, I want. And he went home and he said to his parents, I want to go to church. Isn't that remarkable? That the testimony of a father became a testimony through an atheist son to a man who then became a Christian. You see, the Spirit is so much more powerful than I think we ever realise. And God has given us his Spirit to empower our Christian witness. Please note, we're not called to convert people. We're just called to bear witness, to give testimony. And God is the one who does the converting. We don't need to be afraid of being witnesses because our witness to Jesus is spirit-enabled and spirit-empowered. Well, the book of Acts is about the work that Jesus began in his life and his death and his resurrection. And it's about the work that he is continuing to do through his disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit. And maybe that's a better book, better title for the book of Acts. Rather than the Acts of the Apostles, perhaps we should call it the Acts of Jesus through his disciples empowered by his Holy Spirit. Because that's what it's about. And that's what our lives are about, actually. The Acts of Jesus through his disciples empowered by his Holy Spirit. Because of that, Acts is a dangerous book because the work of Jesus is a dangerous work. It cost Jesus his life and it will cost our lives as well. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Saviour Jesus Christ and all that he began to do and to teach in his life and ministry on our planet. Lord, we thank you for him entering our world as one of us. We thank you for the people that he healed, for the lives that he changed, for those that he drew to himself, for the disciples that he gathered and that he taught. Lord, we thank you most of all for his death, for sins, and his resurrection from the dead, and that he ascended to be at your right hand, where he now reigns over all. Father, thank you that he has not finished his work, but that he continues to work even now, and that by his Holy Spirit, which he has poured out on us, he continues to work through us. And so, Father, we ask that you would use us in the ministry of testifying to him, that others might know the great news that we have encountered and that many of us have embraced, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. So, Father, we pray that you would equip and empower us through your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.